You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, it's Jean Chatsky. Before we start the show, I just want to say thank you for listening. Whether you've been with us from day one or you're coming to us for the first time, it means a lot to us. And we want to make sure we're producing the show you want, which is why we're conducting a very brief listener survey. You can find the link in the show's description graph or Head to hermoney.com slash survey to say thank you. We've got some prizes on the table, but it'll only take a couple of minutes, and you'll reap the reward by hearing more of what you want. Now let's talk money. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. We want you to demand more from your money. So start by knowing what you own and owe, and we'll help you take the next step at fidelity.com slash demand more now. Her money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. And here's the big question for this week How do you get what you want at work? It's a question that's been top of mind for me all week. For a recent Today segment, I explored this question for people over 50. I sat down with a bunch of work-life experts, and we hashed it out. And one thing that I learned coming out of it is that people of different generations actually seem to want different things. And if we're all going to figure out a way to work together, we're going to have to find a way to understand why it is that people who are younger than us, older than us, different than us, because they come from a variety of perspectives, want the things that they want and that we all need to respect those things and help each other if we're going to lift the overall population of the company at once. I learned a lot about this topic from talking with Lisa Lord. I met Lisa, actually, and for those of you who have been thinking about coming to a Her Money Happy Hour, this is why you should come to a Her Money Happy Hour. I met Lisa at a Her Money Happy Hour. She had a perspective on different generations in the workplace that I had never heard before. And so I invited her on the show. Lisa is an executive coach. She works out of Philadelphia. She developed her point of view as an executive in HR working for different Fortune 500 companies. And so after decades of working inside companies, she decided to launch a coaching and consulting practice, and she is now working with individuals, helping them get what they want out of work. Lisa, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. I'm so interested in what got you to the point that you could understand what people want at work. Tell, tell us just a little bit about your background and how that shaped you. So in human resources, there's lots of different aspects. And my part was in talent development and organizational development. And that's the part of the business that looks at who are the people that can take higher level positions, succession management. How can we get more out of our employees? How can our culture help us achieve our business strategy? And I did that work for 30 
30 years. It wasn't always called that. It was called many different things. But over that time, what I saw was there were a lot of good intentions that were not realized. Managers who wanted to give someone a shot, but then when it came down to it, they didn't get the shot. Or employees who wanted something and went after a job and it didn't meet their needs. And so I did a lot of coaching in those roles. And when I left corporate life, I thought, why not do the coaching and help people do it on their own without the restraints that I was limited to when I was on the inside? So what does it mean to be a coach today? What If you've got a client, what are you helping them do or what's the kind what's the range of things that you're helping your clients achieve so there's so many coaches out there yeah and um and it is hard to pick what's really important is to know what are you looking for and why and i always meet with people first to find out so if they end up working with me there's some sort of a transition that they've either gone through or they desire to go through so maybe it's a young person who says i don't like the career path I chose for myself in college. I'm kind of stuck in it. Or maybe it's a boomer like me and says, I've done this all along for the money, and now I want to do something that brings me more meaning. They're very different questions, but they're both about transitioning to something I haven't done before. Let's talk about the different generations and what we tend to to want. Well, when I look at millennials in the workforce, I often see people who want fulfillment, they want passion, they want to get ahead, and they don't want to wait. And to me as a boomer, and and I'm right on the cusp, quite frankly, Mm -hmm. of Xers and boomers. I'm the very last year of the Xers and the very first year of the boomers. That's hard for people like me who were told, pay your dues, pay your dues, pay your dues, and who did to wrap our heads around. Yeah. The advice I give people when they say I don't get it is just look at how your kids grew up. Because I have three millennials, and they grew up with instant television, like Netflix, the idea of binging watching. You want to watch a TV show? You can watch all episodes at once. They were just released 12 hours in a row. Where we grew up having to watch, wait till Thursday night, can't wait, watch my favorite show. Or they grew up with Amazon and instant arrival. So they got packages. I get a package sometimes in the same day, which just floors me. Or they grew up getting feedback instantaneously, constant likes on the Instagram or Facebook or whatever they were using. Depending on your age of millennial, the tool and technology would vary. But as a result, they were taught... Go for what you want. Go after your dreams. Do whatever you want. The world is your oyster. It's a lot of pressure, Mm -hmm. but it also implies, and I'll get it if I want it. And so that impatience, we taught them. Our environment taught them. The technology, the world they grew up in taught them that impatience. So if you are a millennial, and we know when we survey the listeners of this show— that we've got a pretty varied audience. We've got a lot of millennial listeners. We've even got some Gen Z listeners, which we love. We've got some boomers, and we've got some Xers as well. If you're the millennial listening and you're thinking, yeah, I don't like to wait, how do you 
understand that about yourself and put it to use in your career in a way that doesn't hold you back? So it's a great question, and it feeds right into probably the first thing that usually comes up in the workplace around complaints about millennials, and the complaint is that they're in too big of a hurry, and it's the one you raised. It's the one we hear most often in the workplace. And so the millennial who's in a hurry doesn't realize that there's another way to advance rapidly without asking for that next promotion. I've been in the job 18 months. I'm ready for my next promotion. And my advice to them is use your skills and do some research. Find out what's the job you desire and why. And if you know what you want and you feel like you're ready, learn the competencies that are necessary in order to get that job. Because no one's going to hire you and take the risk if you've never done it before. That's how the workplace works. So you have to do it before you can get promoted? You actually do. And it feels like a real catch-22. Because if, let's say, I want to be a project manager or a people leader, and I've never done it before, how am I ever going to get the job? You have to break it down to the smaller parts. So any really good project manager knows how to multitask, can handle multiple things at once, knows how to work with multiple stakeholders, knows how to identify start and end dates and readjust them as a result of a change in the environment. So focus on, are you doing that now in your job? How much skill do you have at that? Is there a portion in there that you could be better at? And focus on developing now in the area where you could get better. That will help you advance more rapidly. It's dressing for the job you want to have. It is. How do you convince somebody to take a chance on you and let you try some of these things that you have never done before so that you can get the skills for the next job? So I like to use a ratio, and I I don't think you could find this in any HR book. This comes from years of succession management and practices. But I use the ratio of you've got to be at least 50% ready. You have to have done at least 50% of what the job requires before someone's going to hire you for that job. So in some way, shape, and form, you have to have done it. And if you've done it, then the key to getting someone to take a risk, if it's only 50%, is to explain how you acquired those skills, how you go about learning, proving you have the learning agility, you learn rapidly, and you tell stories and give examples. But I, I'm even wondering, how do you get that 50%? How do, If you've not done it before, if you want to be a manager of people and you've not managed people, how do you get that first shot at managing people, or do you have to do it outside your company? I think you have to think of it less as a role than as a responsibility. So let's say, for instance, someone works for you, and they've never managed people before, and they want that job. You're like, I don't know. Well, do you have an intern program? If you have interns coming and going, I want you to manage the intern program. I want you to give those people feedback. I want to see those people grow and develop as a result of you being involved with them. That will give me a degree of confidence that I could take a risk on you. And when I see you accepting my feedback and learning from the feedback I've offered you and learning rapidly, that's going to increase my confidence. You're still not a people manager. You've never done it. But you've demonstrated the skills that are required of people managers, and you've demonstrated the learning agility, the ability to learn rapidly on the job. Okay, flip it now. You're an Xer. You're a boomer. You're managing a team that you love, 
but you get the sense that they feel like they're wasting their time. Mm-hmm. And you're getting requests constantly for feedback. And it's like, I gave you feedback. Just do it already. That frustration is real. So you've highlighted the second pain point that's so obvious, which is that the boomers or the leaders are saying, I'm so frustrated. These are such needy people who are so impatient. That's the description of the millennials. What they really have to look at them is with some compassion. They are the way they are because of how they were raised, the time in which they were raised. So with just a little bit of compassion for their situation, then you go after saying, look, I'm happy to give you feedback, but let's make sure this feedback is meaningful. What do you want it for? What are you going to do with it? What do you think is going to magically happen when I start giving you feedback? Force your employees to get really clear about what they desire. This, by the way, is really going to freak out the millennials because they get very anxious when they don't have a plan. Mm -hmm. They want to have a plan. They want to know where they're heading. And then they get stuck in this situation where they're like, oh, my God, now I need a plan and I don't have a plan. And then I go back with compassion to the millennials like I did with someone on your team and said, quit being scared about it and get excited about it. I actually gave her the example of I work with a financial planner and we had our annual checkup. And she asked me, well, what are your goals with your new boyfriend that I have now since I'm divorced? And I was like, financial goals? I don't know. I guess vacations? Well, do you know where you want to go? How much money you would spend? How often you'd want to take vacations? And I thought, oh, that's so exciting. I never thought about it. How are we ever going to save towards it if we don't have a goal? So that's advice I give my millennials who say, I don't know what job I want. I just want more feedback. Set a goal that's exciting. And the research actually shows that anxious and excitement are, they they present in very much the same way. I mean, if you think about what anxious feels like, your stomach is in a knot, your palms are a little sweaty. If you think about what excited feels like, it's the exact same thing. And so if you can convince yourself it's not anxiety, it's excitement mm-hmm. in a fake it, so you make it kind of way, it actually works. It totally works. And it works with investments and it works with your career. And that being excited, all of a sudden now you've opened the door in your brain to the possibilities that could present themselves. And it's that, you know, what you pay attention to is what expands. And so if you're paying attention to what possible opportunities are out there, all of a sudden you'll start to see more opportunities. I'm going to flip the script and I'm going to ask you to tell us what frustrates millennials about us, their bosses, and how to deal with that. But before I do that, I want to remind everybody that Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. What if you could demand more from your money? What if you could make your savings work as hard as you do? And what if that helped you reach your financial goals faster. It all starts with a financial checkup and an understanding of what you own and what you owe. From there, the folks at Fidelity can help you evaluate your investment options and come up with more ways to grow your savings. You can get started today at fidelity.com slash demand more now. We are happily talking with executive coach Lisa Lord. I am not so I don't even know what the word is. I am not so full of myself that I don't believe that my employees never get frustrated with me. I know that they get frustrated with me. But universally looking at the generations, what is it about people my age, 
40s, 50s, beyond, that frustrates the members of our teams that are just coming in? Yeah, I think the number one is the expectations around money. Um, that what the millennial will hear from a boomer or an older generation leader is you can't make that much money. And that's like a big turnoff to millennials because a research, recent research shows that millennials expect to make $80,000 a year. And it's like no starting job ever starts with that. Well, some of them do. Yes. Right? right. I mean, lawyers start at $80,000 a year and coders often start, I think, at 80,000. Engineers start there. But journalists certainly do not. No, they don't. Nor do people in human resources or management. It just doesn't start that way. So that sort of expectation on the table, when millennials are told by boomers that you can't make that much money, that you can't or you need to pay your dues, that's the kind of thing that really pisses off the millennial because they've been raised their whole life saying, yes, I can. I'll just find another way to do it. So I think your question was, you know, what really pisses off the millennial? What to frustrates managers? them? Yeah. And, and, what can, and how can we be better? So first, when you say things like you have to pay your dues, I would say change your language and operate from a place of compassion. Think of them as your kids. You might tell your kids you have to pay your dues, but then when you see your kid really upset, you're going to show some support and say, well, let's talk about what you could do on your job. You'd offer loving insight and options. And in fact, millennials are looking for mentors who are going to offer them something like that. So I know I had to work in customer service before I could ever advance to the level I'm at today. So is there a part of your company you need to work in before you can advance to that next level? Have you done any research around that? So asking, engaging in a dialogue without cutting them off and telling them you can't, you need to pay your dues. Well, and it's not even just paying dues. It's always growing. I feel like there's a challenge for managers these days to create an environment where people can grow all the time, and that's not always possible, and it's really hard. So I would say the biggest problem there is managers are thinking it's their responsibility to grow the millennials or the younger workers. No, it's not. It's your responsibility to create an environment where they can grow, an environment that feels safe, that they can be themselves, that they can try new things out, that they can get feedback, that they can learn from failure, and hopefully not the same failure ever again. But it's an opportunity to learn. And in that case, the ownership of the growth is in the hands of the millennial. And when they own their own growth, they're far more likely to stay. The reason millennials leave, number one reason is my manager. Number two, no opportunities for career growth. The assumption boomers make or people of older generations is they didn't get promoted. That's why they left. That's not true. They left because there was no opportunity to grow. As a company grows, new responsibilities show up. Give them to one of your younger people. Make sure they're learning from that opportunity. They'll stay loyal. Give me another opportunity to grow. They're going to grow even more. And when they have some accountability for their growth or skin in the game, they're going to be really conscientious about the feedback they get because they're going to want to do better and not make mistakes again. So every time there's a new opportunity or a new project within the current job, 
without any promotion or change in pay, give a growth opportunity to a younger person. They're going to take a lot and do a lot with it and learn a lot from it. And that's going to help them boost their resume, their skill sets, which will ultimately help them advance when the time comes. The flip side, and I see you have another question, but the flip side is the HR people know that we need these people to stay in their jobs because you really can't master skills from just being in a job a year to 18 months. You learn the basics, but you know in any job you've ever undertaken, it's the second year you do it or the second time you try it where you learn all different things, things you never would have learned the first time because you were just doing the fundamentals. Master the fundamentals, and now you have complex challenges to learn. So succession management says, let's try to stay in a job two to two and a half years minimum, and then advance, because it's only then that you will have mastered the skills that really say you can, you're ready to move on. You brought up the money, so I want to wrap it up by talking about the money, because sometimes, and, and I think this is true no matter what age you are, sometimes it feels like I've been in this job a year. I've been in this job a year and a half. It's time for a raise. It's time for more money, and not just a cost of living raise, but a significant raise. When is it time for a raise, and what's the best way to ask for one? So really tricky and depends on the company. I mostly work with people who sit in larger corporations, not small businesses. And in larger corporations, you really have to prove that there's been a significant change in the job, that your responsibilities today have expanded in um, either what you're responsible for, the budget you're responsible for, the number of projects you oversee, the number of people you manage. But it has to be a significant enough change from where you were to justify a promotion. And that's justified because they have to have rules in place to keep things equitable and fair, and that's how human resources operates. But that doesn't mean you can't make more money on the side. And that's another thing I love about the millennials. Don't just assume you're only going to make money from your day job. That's your money job. That's great. But if you have a desire to advance in something else while you're young and while you have so much energy, go after the side hustle. Try to make a little bit of money on the side. I coach a woman in Philadelphia who tried to make a little bit of money doing um, website development. It got so big so fast, she freaked out. And I said, well, now, how much are you really making? Do the business planning. But if you're really seeing the level of potential earnings go down the drain because you're on a money job that you don't love as much, then quit your money job. Just factor in everything else, insurance, taxes. you got to be smart about it. Well, and make sure your side hustle is really going to be able to support you. Exactly. Lisa Lord, fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for making the trip from Philly to talk to us today. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And we'll be right back with Kelly and your mailbag. Your opinion really matters to us. So let me just remind you again, please take a few minutes now to go to hermoney.com slash survey and let us know how we can make the show even better. One more time, hermoney.com slash survey. Thank you. And Kelly is with me in the studio, our producer, Kelly Hultgren. Hello. Hello. I was trying really hard, I hope you noticed, to be as hard on me as I was on younger people. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I felt like also we were both getting this amazing private coaching session. I know. Our listeners are so lucky. Everything Lisa said hit really close to home for me. For me, too. See? Yeah. I, I felt like that was—she coached both of us. Yeah. And we're two different generations. We are. But we love each other. Yes, we do. Yes, yes, we do. <laughs> so I have thoughts since I wasn't in here, but I was listening in. Going back to this idea of patience— which is, I think, at the core of everything we're talking about for millennials. Mm -hmm. Also self-awareness, which I want to get to as well, but with patience. So I understand that I'm primed to be impatient. Everything she said, I, I get. We were brought up in the digital age. We're true digital natives, and we're primed for immediacy. But then I also have heard from so many wonderful women that we've had on this show, yourself included, of moments of their careers where they were too patient, where they did sit and wait because they were told they needed to pay their dues and they were hoping that they would just get noticed and that all the work that they were doing and everything that they were waiting for would just happen to yep. them and they weren't aggressive enough. So I'm struggling now with like hearing this fantastic advice and these new perspectives of how to strike the balance between this patience, this like intuition maybe that you need to have, but also this aggression and advocacy that we need to have for ourselves. I know. It's really hard. And I got to tell you, there were times during this conversation when I thought, they're not millennial, they're just young. Mm. Because I was flashing back on myself at 26. And I did exactly, I did this. And I was not a millennial. Mm -hmm. I went into my bosses prematurely and said, I'm ready for a promotion. Sure. I'm producing so much work. Yeah. And they were like, no, <laughs> no, you're not ready for a promotion because, you know, you're not, yeah. you're not there yet. And so I, I do think, I think there is some generational stuff in it, but I also think that some of us need to reflect on our younger selves and remember, hey, we were there too, and we were hungry, and we wanted to grow, and it's not—we we point the finger an awful lot. Yeah. I think as far as your question about being too patient goes, if you're doing something that you know is a valuable contribution and you really feel like your manager or your boss is not paying attention and they need they need to see this then think about whatever medium they will receive the message in most clearly whether it's written whether it's in person mm -hmm. and deliver it with compassion mm -hmm. with compassion that you know hey I don't often toot my own horn around here, but I'm really proud of this. Mm -hmm. I just wanted you to know how proud of this I am. Because yeah. in that light, I think everybody starts to feel good about it. Absolutely. But even what you just said, too, about you going back and remembering who you were when you were in your 20s and how you were acting and approaching these situations then, I mean, it's on us, too, to realize we're sitting across from also a human and realize that it's the self-awareness that I think is at the heart of everything we're talking about here and realizing that, you know, our bosses are humans too. Mm -hmm. They they went through what we're going through. And I also think it's so valuable to not only like hopefully cultivate self-awareness of how you are as a person, how you're coming off, how your communication style is, and hopefully how it's being received, but also learning your boss in a way of seeking to understand how you tick, how you act, how you will receive it, exactly what you just said. So it's on us too. Yeah. And I also think, I mean, the thing that I'd never want to be, and if I am, you will have to call me out <laughs> on this. You know, I spent 
the earliest years of my career at Working Woman magazine, which was the least friendly place for women Mm. on the planet. And it's not just my perception because I've talked to other women who were there in and around the same time. And it was that dues-paying mentality. It was Mm. a lot of women who, boy, did they fight the fight. They fought it so that I didn't have to fight it. And I'm 54 years old. So I fought it in a number of ways too, but not like them. Yeah. But – they were not going to let younger women get away with not fighting themselves. They were gonna. They were gonna force that dues paying. And I don't think it's necessary as it was before. I do think there are skills that you need. Mm-hmm. I think there are um, there are capabilities, as Lisa said, that you have to cultivate. But time on the clock is not one of them. It's also maturity. And yeah. We all mature at different rates. And it's, yeah, so maybe it, it isn't necessarily time on a clock, too. It's like who you are as a person. And that's going to, you can't make, you know, these generalizations for everyone, especially on a small team. But I will say something that also really made me happy to hear and something I've been lucky to have in my work environment is you always giving me growth opportunities. I have been with you for over five years, and that's because you've continued to give me opportunities to grow. Well, and you've been with me for over five years because you've grown into those opportunities. Mm -hmm. So it's not, not everybody who had your job could do what you do. And so I think it's just a good match. So there you you. go. See, we do love each other. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, questions. First, we'll do one from Ellie. I have a modest income, and I'm now saving 600 plus per month after all bills and my student loans are paid. I feel late to the investment game since I have been in school for most of my 30s. I also would like to purchase a home in the next year. My question is, where is the best place to put my extra 600 plus a month, my Roth IRA, pay more on my student loans, or just a savings account? It depends what the money is for. If it's for a home, then you don't want to put it in anything but a Roth IRA or a savings account because you can get the money out of a Roth IRA for your first home without any penalties. Once you put it in the Roth IRA, if it's for that home, what you do not want to do is invest it because we know the markets are volatile. We know they go up and down. I don't want to see that 600 become 450, which, you know, could happen if we have a severe correction, depending on how you've invested it. I'd rather see it stay at 600 and even be a little more than 600 because you've put it into some sort of a safer haven. Great. Now one from Jenny. First time mom with baby on the way. We are thankfully in control of our finances with maxed out retirement options, investments in riskier vehicles outside of retirement for growth and fun, diversified mutual fund slash robo ETF accounts, and a safety net. With baby on the way, what should we be thinking about? 529 plans, writing wills, investment accounts in the child's name. We live in New York City, so we'll need to budget for child care and increased expenses. Any advice for simple ways we should think about it? 20% of income for X, for example. We are money smart, but this is a new territory, and help and or resources would be greatly appreciated. Love, 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 love the podcast. Thank you love so you, Jenny. much. Yeah, and Jenny, you're a rock star. Yeah, I mean, seriously. <laughs> seriously, you live in New York and you do all this. You are, you are a rock star. On the list of things that you mentioned, I would not put money in the child's name in a discretionary account or a uniform gift to minors account. I would go the 529 
route. And I would look at how much you can afford after all of those childcare expenses to put into a 529 each month. It's quite possible because you're in a position right now where you have the financial resources to do a lot that you overload your college savings contributions now. And then when your child gets closer to college, you don't have to put as much into those accounts. That might be fine because you may have other obligations at that point. You could also run some college savings calculators based on the type of college that you think your child might attend that can give you a ballpark of how much you may want to put in on a monthly basis. But I would say automate it because that's a way to ensure that it just happens again and again and again. As for that will, absolutely, and you need life insurance. You now have somebody, depending on your income, depending on your spouse's income, you want to make sure that things like college are taken care of if something happens to you and you're no longer able to make those contributions. Wow, but she's doing Amazing. so many wonderful things. Amazing. Yeah, Thanks for writing in, Jenny, and listening to our show. We'll do one more from Andrea. I made a rather embarrassing money blunder. I set all of my credit cards to auto pay to make sure all the payments went in on time. However, after a bank switch and a call into the credit card company for help changing with auto pay, I didn't realize the auto pay wasn't set up properly until three months later, and the credit line had been closed out. I tried to get it reopened, but it was denied. Now that the panic and shame of no longer having 100% on-time payments has worn off, I'm trying to decide what my best option is. So the thing to understand about credit history is that it's a history and that the more time that goes by, the less that recent history is important, the less it weighs on both your mind and the mind of the credit bureaus. And by the time you're a year or two, generally two down the road, it won't matter at all. So you want to stay on good behavior. That means making sure you're paying all your bills on time every time. It means making sure that you're not taking out lines of credit that you don't need. It means not closing credit accounts that haven't been closed, and it means keeping your utilization on any credit cards that you still have fairly low. I can't tell from your question if you have no credit cards anymore. If that's the case, go ahead and um, go on the website bankrate.com and search for the best secured credit cards. It'll ask you to deposit a sum of money to basically guarantee your line of credit. But once you make your on-time payments for 12 or 18 or 24 months, depending on the card, it will convert into a regular card and it will rebuild that history for you. Amazing. Thank you, Jean. And thank you, everyone, for writing in. Thank you so much. And In our weekly Thrive segment, our earlier conversation with Lisa reminded me of a story I did for HerMoney.com on the new rules of resumes. A few months back, I posted an ad on a job board called MediaBistro.com for a new position with our company. I've used this resource before, and as usual, I get a lot of resumes, but what was unusual this time was what the resumes looked like. They didn't look like resumes. Many of them looked like the menus that you'd find in a trendy restaurant with blocks of type in different fonts, separated by borders, full of icons. I was intrigued, so I dug in a little bit. And here is what I learned from my reporting. This is a functional resume. And I know that the millennials who are listening all have these, so you're probably rolling your eyes at me. But 
these newfangled sort of resumes are appealing to employers because while a resume is a static, often stayed document, this gives them a way to pop. So if you're out there and you're looking for a job, one of the things that you want to do is consider building one of these more functional resumes. The other thing to keep in mind is that your LinkedIn profile is a de facto resume. So while you're spending time building your resume, don't neglect your LinkedIn. Any recruiter who is truly interested in you is going to check out your page and they're going to learn a lot about you. They're going to learn what you follow and what you're reading and what causes you care about and whether you volunteer and who you're connected to. So if it's been a long time since you updated your LinkedIn, you're missing a very important boat. You can head to hermoney.com for the rest of that story. Thanks so much for joining me today on the podcast. Thank you to Lisa Lord for a terrific conversation. We liked being on your couch. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week when we will be back with another great guest, and we'll talk soon. 